Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, interest rates. As I had mentioned in the past three classes, you have a quiz on Wednesday, a surprise quiz, so please be surprised by that. And uh, aside from that, I'm going to take a little time to show you a few last stupid pet tricks in Excel as pertains to the topic of last week, specifically finding uh, these have to do with loans and the payments as I covered last week, but I, I didn't get around to showing you in uh, Excel about how to do it. So I'm going to start with one in the calculator and then just quickly do it there and then I'll show you how to do it, 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 do it in Excel. Now there are a couple of other things that you need to know about for Excel as well uh, that are actually easier in the calculator than they are in Excel. I've done a spectacular job several times of messing up the formulas in Excel for these because they don't quite follow the same rules as other financial functions in Excel. But let me get to that here in a, just a minute. Um, delete. I'm going to come down here. But before we do that, a quick look at the markets just to keep you fresh on that because I always ask some questions on a quiz about this kind of stuff. And as you can see, it's just been one of those kind of a, a mixed day. The Dow was up, it has been up just a little bit, nothing spectacular, 0.4%. The S&P 500 actually was down early in the day and it's been groveling its way back up. Now it's down only a quarter of a percent. Same with the NASDAQ, groveling back up from a, a day where it was down a lot more. It's hard to call, say what's going on as far as the market's mentality goes. But over here, you can see the crude is still well below 80. Now the interesting part is why haven't gasoline prices eased back up? They should, but uh, they're still filling the pipelines. Um, jet fuel is still short. Uh, Avgas, as we say, and diesel is in much better shape, so they're still producing a lot of those distillates, but we'll get around making the gasoline here soon enough, and that should make, help everything out as far as gas prices go. Gold was miserable, up a, a one one-hundredth one of a percent, so there's nothing going on there. Silver was a little bit stronger at first, but then it's been starting to take a nosedive. Going over here, 10-year bond. Bond yields down, which means bond prices are up. Now that would mean that there is some buying pressure on the bonds. I will ask this, quizzes and on the exam, okay, bond prices are inversely related to the bond yield. So if the yield is going down, the price is going up. If the price is going up, that means investors are buying bonds. Demand for bonds is, is strong. On the other hand, if bond yields are up, that would mean bond prices are down. Prices go down if there is not much activity, then there's a sell-off. Other than that, 
on the bond market. So make sure you have that dynamic relationship down. It's just a two-step relationship. I do ask it on quizzes and exams. Oh, London, nothing, I mean, it's, it, it just barely broke above where it started at 0.12%, so nothing was happening there. Earlier, the Nikkei was, it got slammed early on, but then it groveled its way back up and finished just barely above where it started for the day, so there's nothing going on there. The markets are in uh, one of those wait-and-see attitudes. If I look uh, a little deeper into the S&P 500, um, the, those 500 stocks had a total trading of 2.4 billion shares today. That's a lot less than the typical uh, over the last year, which was 4.1 billion. So that's another sign that a lot of money is being kept off the investment platform right now. Wait and see. And a lot of that has to do with well, we, we know the Fed has, is still going to be aggressive, and I'm going to go through that today to, to uh, quite an extent, the story of the Fe, uh, Federal Reserve actions that cause interest rates to move, because this is the uh, topic for today, interest rates, and particularly what, how the Fed affects short-term interest rates uh, in our economy. Look at a couple of stocks just to keep you fresh on being able to read screens because on the midterm I always do a screenshot of uh, a uh, stock, a screenshot of one of these and then say, okay, you tell me this information that I'm asking for. Okay, so starting out, I don't know. I, I've had a conversation just the last couple of days twice, which is a little bit odd, on AMC. Now, AMC had a flurry some time back, but as you can see, it's just uh, almost a penny stock right now. And you don't have a P.E. ratio. The reason you don't have a P.E. ratio is there is a negative EPS. If there's a negative, if the company is uh, losing money, a price-earnings ratio is not reported. But if you look at the beta, that is a stupid high beta, 2.06. That means this is really a risky investment. I want to look down here just real quick. Earnings. They have an earnings announcement coming out in a week. Now, as you can see, um, the fourth quarter of 2021, they hit their earnings estimate right on the button. But then in the next um, quarter, they were they, uh, they overestimated their earnings. So when their earnings actually came in, they were below what they had estimated. And the same was true the next quarter. Interestingly, though, their earnings, the last quarter they estimated, their actual earnings came in above what they thought they were. So that was some kind of surprising news. Now the question comes down to what's going to happen with the earnings that are coming up. These are strong, they're saying their earnings are growing. That should start rumors, and if I were a betting kind of person, I'd say that that might cause the stock price to go up some here, because the rule, remember the rule is buy on the rumor, sell on the news. 
So even if their earnings don't come in good, or they do come in good, and probably you'd want to sell before that, but the rumors probably will start within a couple of days about where their earnings are actually going to come in. Will they come in below, at, or above the estimate? If the rumors are that they'll come in above their estimate, you should see the stock price go up for a few days. But that's, it's all, you know, this is gambling, and it's like educated gambling where you can get a little bit of, a, uh, of an edge by following some good rules. But I would say that they're probably, the rumors will be that they'll come in above their target. AMC is in a difficult situation simply because they um, are up against major competitors like uh, Marcus Theaters and some of the other heavies, and they are behind the ball to some extent on refurbishing all of their theaters. You can see there's an A, do any of you go to the AMC here in town? It's over on the um, north side of town. It's, it's an old kind of dingy theater. I like it because it feels like an old fashioned theater, but a lot of people would rather go to one of these fancy new theaters with the nice seats and all that. We'll see how all this plays out though. One more just for laughs. I do want to show you something, Tesla, T-S-L-A. Tesla is obviously by the beta risky, really risky. I mean, this is 2.11 risky. And then the P-E ratio is flagging overvaluation. But that's not slowing down the company at all. If you look at the one year on Tesla, do you see those declining tops? That's a bad sign, but do you see that they broke that, that neckline of declining tops and declining bottoms on really heavy volume over the past month or so? Probably that money was coming in from foreign investors and from these positive earnings reports, but it looks to me like, I mean, the overvaluation is not to be dismissed but it broke that neckline to the downside on the tops and on the bottom. See how they're both, it's well above those necklines. Well, that's, to a lot of investors, that's a good sign. If you look at their earnings, they got earnings coming out in a month or two, yeah, in April. They've been consistently above their earnings projections, and they probably will come in again above their projections. That does not mean cash flow, free cash flow. Profit is not real. Free cash flow is, and that's where we want to know. We have to crank the numbers and say, okay, where are they as far as free cash flow goes? That's another matter entirely. But that's where we are right now as far as the uh, markets are concerned. Now, let me go on to interest rates here. For, but before I do that, I do want to do one last Excel. Remember, I, matter of fact, let me pull this up on the calculator first. And I'm just going to do a freehand problem. Just a mortgage. Now, be sure you can do this. I've got a, I actually wrote some problems, but I've still got them hidden. I forgot to turn on the Make Visible button in VeggieNet, so I'll have to make those available for you. But here we go. Okay, uh, apps, finance, TVM solver. Let's take a, 
a mortgage loan. Let's do a 30-year, and remember you do that times 12 months, 12 payments a year, and we'll do an APR of 6.69, and we divide that by 12. Remember, that's how you do it on the calculator, and you do it as just the percentage. You don't put in the, dec the decimal of it. And let's say we take out a loan for, and remember, PVs have to be negative, uh, let's say $175,000. Now, we're going to find the payment. There's no FV, no kicker at the end, and then it's FV0, then P over Y1, C over Y1, and make sure your payments are on the end. It's an ordinary annuity. Payments come at the end of every period. Now, once you've got those, your payment, just say alpha, enter, alpha, solve, and you get $1,128.08 a month payments. Get it down to where, and then you can do this sort of reality check. Do those payments make sense? Yeah, for a $175,000 house, $1,100 sounds about right. You get a feel for this. You might not actually have that feel yet, but after you've had a few homes in your life, okay, there's that. Now, I'm going to show you something else out here. Second quit. What would, we got a 30-year loan. How much do you still owe after, let's say, 15 years? There is an app in the finance uh, facilities for that. Apps Finance. Now, if you go clear down here, You'll see one called BAL, balance. Just hit enter. Now, it's going to look back into the TVM solver for your, for your numbers. So it, you gave it the numbers in months. So in the BAL, you have to say 15 years times 12 months because everything it's looking at is in months. Then close the parentheses and just hit enter. And look at that, you've got the balance. You can get the balance at any point along the way. You still owe 100, almost $128,000. You're halfway through the loan and you, you borrowed 175 and you'll still owe 128 halfway through the loan, which should sort of depress you. That's one of the problems. In the first years of a loan, if the housing values go down, you owe more than the, the house is worth. And so we say you're upside down on the loan. That's you know, bad news. So kind of keep this in mind. You have to really hammer before you get to the halfway point in the loan. So there you are. But uh, what was I going to say? Oh, there's another one. Let me show you. Uh, what if you want to know how much interest you paid on the whole loan over its entire life? Well, there's one for that too. Apps, finance. Now you gotta go, you gotta go down, way down. This sigma sum int. Hit enter. Now this will require two numbers. 
where you want to start calculating interest and where you want to end calculating interest. So you would put in, let's start one, month one, comma, and let's see how much you paid after 15 times 12 months. In other words, the whole life of the loan. Let's see how much interest you paid over the entire loan time. And you can do this for any period. Enter. No, that was not correct. That was 30 times 12. I'm sorry, I wanted to see the whole life. Sorry about that. Holy cow. Over the life of the loan, the 30 years, you paid $231,000 in interest. You borrowed 175, so you paid about, what, 55 grand more in interest than you paid on the house itself. That's how bad it is. So that gives you an idea, kind of, it's not really good to think this way, but it, it, in a way it is. You damn well better ho hope that house is worth more than 175000 plus 231000 in 30 years because that's how much you've paid on that. Kind of scary, isn't it? <laughs> okay, enough of that depressing stuff. Let me go over here to Excel. I'm going to do some of this. I didn't show you last time how to get payments, so I'm going to do that right now. and I'll see if I can do a balance one, too. So let's say um, present value. Well, let's just say loan amount. Make it sound realistic. Loan amount, uh, I don't know, number of years. Compoundings per year. Let's do the APR. Uh, oh, the years, compoundings per year, APR. There's no future value, but we'll put it in there anyway. And the payments. Okay, so. Let's go ahead and do this. Now the loan amount. You'll put in negative $175,000. Years, 30. Compounding's 12. APR. 6.69, and remember in Excel, you've got to tell it it's a percent so it can turn it into a decimal. No future value. So now, let's get the payments. Go ahead, and I'll let you catch up here. <sighs> Number of payments, okay, uh, payments. Okay, equals. PMT, whoop, PMT, open the parenthesis. The rate is the APR divided by the number of compoundings. Don't forget to do that. The number of periods is the years times 
the compoundings per year. The present value is the 175. And now the future value is zero. We could, you don't have to put that in, but I will. And the type, you don't have to put that in. Remember, the default is ordinary annuity, zero. You don't have to put it in if it's going to be a zero. It's one if it's an annuity due. Well, I'm just going to put in the zero for completeness here, but you don't have to. My ass, what did I do? <laughs> no matter how long I do this. Okay, let's do it one more time. Payment. Okay. The rate. Oh, I put in a five there. I, instead of a percent, did you see? Oh my. Well, why didn't someone tell me I did that? Really? You just sat there waiting for me to screw it up, right? There, there's your daggone payment. Same as you got in Excel. Okay? Nothing big there. So you can do the payments in Excel, or you can do them on your calculator for quizzes and exams. Now, the next one, a balance. Yeah, go ahead. Pardon? Zoom in? Oh, matter of fact, that would help me out. That better? I have my own Excel defaulted to half blind for myself. One of these days I ought to get these cataracts fixed. I mean, I've almost run into people, but mostly they were kids. So, uh, okay, now let's do the balance. Whoops. Now let's do 30 years. Now here's the problem. There are several different ways to do this in Excel. And they're all a little bit cumbersome. Uh, a little bit. Because the function that I'm going to use is cumulative principle. So what I would have to do is take the original balance minus the cumulative principal paid. There's another nasty thing in these, this, this Excel formula. And I was driving myself crazy because I didn't remember what it was. And I, in the last class, I just blew through it and I kept getting errors. Unlike normal functions, you've got to make sure that the PV is positive to use this, let me show you. So I'm going to take equals the absolute value of the, and then I'm going to minus, and here's where the pain comes in. Cumulative PRI principle, open parenthesis. Now the first thing you're going to have to do is tell it the rate, and that would be B4 divided by 12, the compoundings per year. Then comma, the number of periods. 
And that would be the 30 times 12. But this is the one, and I think I've got this right. It doesn't want a negative PV. It wants the positive PV. So I have to take the absolute value, again, of B1, the loan amount, for the PV. Now, the start period would be month one, and the end period after 15 years, I, 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 no, let, let me do that third, 15, well, I'll do it this one, 30. This should come up to be zero if I do it this way, times 12. Close parentheses now here. You have to tell it the type. In other ones, you can just not put it in, and it'll default to zero, ordinary. In this formula, you have to actually tell it zero or one, but it's usually zero. Now, this should come out to be a zero. Nope, sure didn't. Ah, that's going to be a negative. I'm still not good with this. Yep. So after 15 years, no, I want that to be that number right there. There. As you can see, it's so cumbersome, even I'm screwing it up. So I won't, I would really recommend that unless you get this down, just do it on your calculator, okay? But let me go through it with you. What I did was, now the cumulative principle itself, how much you've paid is just the cumulative principle part. So after 15 years, you've paid $47,000. Notice how that comes out as a negative number. I thought, well, why don't I just use B1 instead of the absolute value? You get an error if you do that. So you just got to remember this. I don't like this at all because it's not like other financial functions, either in Excel or in a financial calculator. In this one, you have to use the positive of the present value. And then what I did there, it told you how much balance you've paid, how much you've paid. And so in order to find out how much you have left, you have to take uh, the, the absolute value of that. Plus that. Plus because it comes out as a negative. Now if you're not really a hot shot at the math, at Excel, this can kind of be past what, you're norm what you would be comfortable with being able to do. That's why, for heaven's sakes, if you don't get it down this way, just go to your calculator. Do you see how much easier it is there than this? This gets in some really painful little twists in Excel. But there you go. Anyway, enough of that. Getting out of that for a while, I'm going to take you, part of what I'm going to do here 
is I'm going to take you on a journey, uh, a, a story journey. Now, I will go back through this again later in the semester, but this is the first pass at a story of the last 75 years or so of finance, in a way, of interest rates in the U.S. economy because it illustrates the formula that I'm going to give you. And this isn't any kind of really difficult formula, it's, but it does require that you kind of ride with me as you see how this formula was actually being uh, 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 driving the uh, political and economic environment of the United States even now in your time. But it starts with a simple idea, interest rates. Now, an interest rate is the, technically, an interest rate is the opportunity cost of funds. An interest rate is the opportunity cost of funds. An interest rate is the opportunity cost of funds. Now, take it in another way. It's a rental rate. An interest rate is a rental rate. Just like a wage rate is a rental rate. You, sir, I'm going to hire you and I'm going to pay you $20, no, in your case, $8 an hour, okay? I am renting you. I'm not buying you. I'm, it, that's not a price. That's a rate, okay? I am just renting you. Rent a guy is the thing of it that way. And that's the same with, with uh, funds, like money or capital. There is a rental rate. I'm going, to <coughs> I'm going to give the money back or the capital back at some point based on the loan agreement. So I just got to pay a rental rate for the use of it because the lender is giving up the use of it to me and therefore it, it represents an opportunity cost to him. So that's why we have interest rates because you're, the lender is foregoing the use of the funds himself or herself. But the, taking it past that, there are so many different interest rates. There's an interest rate on a car loan, on a home loan, on a credit card. Interest rates for bonds, corporate bonds, which we cover next week, those are all over the place. But they all start with a substrate a single interest rate that is underneath all of them. Now, this is an abstraction. It is a theoretical, but we do know it's there, and we can get a really good estimate of what it is, even though it is theoretical. Any interest rate, R, starts with this animal called R sub F. That's called the risk-free rate. That is just the pure opportunity cost of foregone consumption. That's the pure one. It's underneath all of them. And it is hidden uh, because we can't really see it because all the noise, we don't see the actual rate. We see all the rates above it that are stacked on it because there's this other piece over here, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But those are out there. What about this risk-free rate? As, as the name implies or states, it is a rate 
that would have no risk. See, interest rates that we see all have one or more risk factors in them. What would, what would have no risk? Well, again, that's kind of like a pure thing, but we can do a pretty good job. A proc we can get a proxy for it. In other words, something that is very close to it, that's a good thing that we can put into the formulas when we actually have to do mathematics for financial institutions and all that kind of stuff. This R sub F, we use as the proxy the annualized rate on a short-term U.S. government treasury borrowing, a T-bill as we call them. That, I mean, if you need an R sub F for an actual real-world calculation, that's where you go. You look at those T-bill rates. Now let me show you the T-bill rates. We can get them from the uh, United States Treasury, what the current yields are on them. Now, if I pull this up, this is U.S. Department of Treasury, and I'll put this in the scrolling marquee on the uh, left sidebar of my podcasting site, but this, uh, here they are. Now, this, you can choose different time periods to look at. We usually look at a one-year T-bill. That's what we would say the risk-free rate is, even though the real risk, the actual risk-free rate is... Uh, a theoretical, these are as close as you can get. The reason we do this, the reason we say that this T-bill is risk-free, or really close to risk-free, is because there's no risk in it. There's something called a liquidity premium. It would be hard to sell it. No, anyone that has a T-bill can sell it within a split second. There's a maturity premium. Longer means more, higher interest. No, these are one year. And then the default premium. Uh, in nothing, nothing else, uh, everything else could default. A loan can default. The government's loans will not, if it borrows money, it will not default. It will pay you back. You lend the government $1,000, which you can do, you'll get your money back. Well, I've heard that the government's going to default. No, it won't. And there's a couple, three reasons why. One, if the government needs money to pay you back, it can print money for God's sake. Well, what if the printing press is broken? Well, it could raise taxes. Of course, everyone would have a fit, if it, but it could do it theoretically. And three, well, what if it's, the printing presses can't, are broken and what happens if uh, we can't raise taxes? Well, we'll just, uh, what we always do, we'll just find an excuse to attack some country and we'll liquidate it, for God's sake. That's our way. I, we're not going to default, okay? So, now if you will look... These interest rates, this is a risk-free, this is a substrate rate underneath all rates, 5%, 5.00%. Now that is amazing. Let's start, look at 2022. A year ago, last January, the risk-free rate, the T-bill rate was 0.40%. So in 13 months, it has gone from 0.40% clear up to 5.00%. In other words, it has multiplied by 25 times. 
That is exactly what the Fed has been aiming to do. It's crushing the money supply. Supply of money goes down, price of money goes up, uh, or rather, uh, supply of uh, money goes down, and so the cost of money, interest rates, goes up. That's exactly, this is intended Fed policy to drain that inflation out of the economy by cutting the money supply and therefore driving interest rates through the roof. Do you see how all through 2021, the, uh, 2022, the Fed was slowly squeezing the interest rates upward as it was crushing the money supply, just on and on and on. And of course, the, the, that slows down the economy. And that was why we teetered on the brink of recession. But this is how you get rid of inflation. There is no other way to do it. This is how it's done. You create the inflation was caused by too much money. And so how do you get rid of it? You take that money out of the economy. Sort of like the drunkard. Isn't there another way I, I, I can stop being an alcoholic without, you know, like stopping drinking? No, this is it. This is the way it is. And of course, politically, it's dangerous to do. Let me show you something fun. Let's go back to election year 2020. Watch what was happening in 2020. Interest rates were in, that, that's actually about a normal interest rate right there, about one and a half percent. Look what happened during 2020 as the election was approaching. Oh my. Oh dear. <laughs> I mean, these are just insanely low. I think at one point it got so close to zero, it was like, nah, that can't. 0 0.1, 0 0.09, there's a couple of 0.09s, 0.08, yep. And then after the election passed, then the interest rate stabilized for a while. See what was happening? The Fed is a political animal. Even though it's supposed to be objective, the Fed, the governors were terrified of the then president and what the fact that he might even try to fire them, which he can't do, but they thought he'd try to. And so they were dropping interest rates to boost the economy into the election. That, and of course, that just fueled the inflation that came later. Just karoom, it went, once you, you're, they, they were printing money day and night, which of course, supply of money goes up, the price of money, interest rates goes down. That was what it was. And of course, what happens after that? Well, spank me, Jesus, the inflation started to show up. That's how it works. It's not politics. It's not your philosophy. I'm a moderate conservative, but this is no question. This is how it worked. They were cranking out money to drive down interest rates to juice the economy going into the election. They're not, this isn't the first time it's happened. It happens all, a lot during election seasons. Uh, the Fed, you start seeing interest rates doing funkadelic things. Anyway, enough of that. But then, well, let me take you into 2021. In 21, the Fed, the interest rates, well, let me show you. Once we've gotten past the election, 
You notice the interest rate stayed stable for quite some time afterwards, keeping the economy going. They even went lower. But then the Fed realized that inflation was beginning to bite very severely. Do you see how they began their run upward in about November of 2021? Do you see how the then that's when they began to find Jesus because inflation was beginning to show up hard and fast. And then you get into uh, 2022, see how they were starting to rise. Then you get into 2022, and this is when the Fed said, okay, this is scary, and I'll show you why it's so dangerous here in a second. But you can see now, this is 2022, last year. See how the Fed was clamping it down, trying to drain the liquidity by, and interest rates were responding. They were going up. Of course they would. Draining the liquidity brought the interest rates up, 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 until you get to this year. What was that last number? 5.00%. They're not messing around, and they can't. Let me show you. What I'm about to tell you here is something that happens not, this isn't a finance thing. This is actually all through certain sciences like physics and chemistry and even astronomy. I mean, this is, this is kind of a broad principle where there's something, we know something is there, but we know that that's not the elemental thing. There's something inside of it that's jiggling it around, that moves it around. Like, for example, in chemistry, in, it was only in the 1800s, later 1800s, that we knew that things were made up of molecules. Okay, we couldn't see them, obviously, uh, that we didn't have anything near the equipment to see a molecule, but we knew it had to work like this because these parts of the molecule came together to make new things. And so we feel, okay, it's got to be there. We understand a lot about, they knew a lot about molecular structure, pretty much almost everything about it by the end of the 1800s. We knew what they looked like. We knew how those parts of them, the atoms fit together. We couldn't see an atom. We couldn't see a molecule, but we knew how it all worked. It was only actually maybe 50 years, 60 years ago that we actually began to have the kinds of scanning electron microscopes where we could start to see molecules. It was like a famous back in my early time, uh, we knew how complicated DNA was. It was just an ungodly complicated molecule. We figured out, interestingly, the people who were given credit for it were given Nobel Prizes, even though the one who figured it out was a woman who was not credited with figuring out that it was a double helix. That was the only way that DNA could work, was if it was double helix. Then, in, it was almost an accident, and like I said, it was when I was very young, they ran a scanning electron microscope and they actually, in one corner, they got a part of a DNA molecule. Sure enough, it was a double helix. It was just, oh my God, there it is. And the same is true in a lot of subjects too. But in our field, we know that there's two pieces to RCBF. 
We can't really see R sub F itself, much less these two pieces, but we know they are there and we know how they work. Just like we knew what molecules were, we knew how they worked before we ever saw one. And here it is. It has two pieces. There is one piece that is what we call the real interest rate, R sub real. That is the supply and demand clearing, that equilibrium you know, from economics. That's where the supply of money and the demand for money intersect. That's the one that the Fed moves around when it adds to and drains from the economy liquidity. But there's another one in there too. And this one is a real beast. We designate it with a pi with a superscript E. This is expected inflation. So R sub real is the real interest rate. And the pi E is expected inflation. The expected inflation premium, to be precise about it. The expected inflation premium. Now notice something here. That does not say inflation premium. It's expected. The truth be told is that financial markets don't give a rat's ass about inflation. All we care about is expected inflation. You, sir, I have decided that I'm going to hire you as my worker. And 40 hours a week, hard work, and I'll pay you $100 a week. I'm a giver. Okay? So after a year, you come in for your annual review, and I say, well, you're doing a damn good job here. I, I see inflation last year was 2%, so I'm going to give you a 2% raise. There's your damn raise. Now go back to work, you lazy ass. Okay? So the next year at the annual, you come in, and I say, well, you're still doing a good job. I see inflation last year was 4%. So I'll give you a 4% raise. Now, get back to work. The next year, you come in, and I, well, I see that inflation this last year was 6%, so I'm, about to give, I'm going to give you a 6% raise. And you say, stop right there, you fat, greedy, capitalist running dog. Why are you being in such a bad mood? I know you ate chili last night that was a little on the spicy side, but... What's wrong with what I've been doing? Yes, you see, he's already lost 6% to inflation. And then I'm going to give him 6%? See, what you would probably would be fair was to give you 8% because it went 2, 4, 6. So next year, it would be 8%. So this would compensate you for what the expectation is. That's how it works in financial markets. A lender is not going to lend, uh, put an interest rate on there that has to do with what inflation was. We're going to do it based upon what we expect it to be over the life of your loan. That's forward. So the inflation premium means nothing. All that matters is what the expectation of inflation is. And that's where the real problem comes in with monetary policy. <laughs> Once you let it get out of hand, 
the expectation starts to build, and then the Fed is playing catch-up. Oh, we're going to fix it. Let me tell you a little story about this. Start back in the 1950s. We had a president uh, in the 50s, for most of it, uh, Dwight uh, Eisenhower. Some call him the last great uh, moderate conservative, and he really was. You don't see conservatives like that. What they call that now is something very different. Now, his, he, he was a former general, very dignified, all order and everything like that kind of guy. Um, and uh, he didn't have any use for big spending programs on what would be considered liberal causes. And he had no use whatsoever for tax cuts. So you had the liberals screaming at him, more social programs. You had the right-wingers screaming, cut taxes, cut taxes. And he said, no, no. Hold everything as it is and just control the ship of state. And at, in that way, monetary policy state just grow the money supply at the real growth rate of the economy to allow for sufficient lubrication for transactions. That was how it was when he was president. Well, he resigned he, in 1960, I believe it was, and the presidential election pitted a hard right conservative named Richard Milhouse Nixon Eisenhower's vice president, against this brash, eastern, war hero, liberal, Irish Catholic guy named John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And I, I distinctly recall they had the first live televised debate, black and white cameras, hugely powerful lights to, because every, the cameras were weak at that time. And um, Nixon was on this one side, this short man who tended to sit like this. And uh, the poor son of a bitch, the lights were right on top above them. And he looked like a ghoul hanging over. He didn't understand. He didn't know how TV worked. But here was this Jack Kennedy. He was the consummate cosmopolitan guy, uh, worldly hero of the war, handsome as hell. Uh, his wife was an awesome lady, Jackie Kennedy. And um, he, he was comfortable with television. He knew TV, he was TV and uh, performance stars. He was friends with uh, Frank Sinatra. There were even rumors that he was having a sort of off and on dalliance with this actress model named Norma Jean. You know her better as Marilyn Monroe. But uh, he got up there, and uh, he, he just ate the lights. And he, was just, he destroyed Nixon in the debate, and he was elected. And he was aggressive. He, he was forward-looking. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And he went on a tear. He said, we are going to put a man on the moon by the end of this decade. And back in that time, of course, all the engineers and rocket scientists were, yeah, sure, we are, Jack. You're not kidding. Are you nuts? Well, we did it because Jack wanted it. And he, he was of the mind. We had, not that many years before, we had defeated the massive, insanely vicious Japanese imperial, uh, imperial army in the East, and we had whipped the filthy Nazis back to hell in Europe. 
we could do anything. America could do anything. So he wait, started the war on poverty. If we can beat these filthy, evil people from hell, we can beat poverty. Well, it turned out that one was a little more difficult than we thought. But anyway, uh, but uh, he also, he was very much, he hated communists. God, he hated them. And uh, so he started sending some advisors to this ungodly backwater, even the French had run away from, called Vietnam. And uh, we were on a roll. It was, they called it Camelot. It was just a happy family in the White House. His wife, Jackie, took the world on a visual tour on TV of the White House. She had redecorated it in Parisians best, Paris's best uh, fineries. She dressed to the nines, beautiful clothing, just a dignified person. And all this was great. We were on a roll. We had taxes that could pay for it. Our highest tax bracket was 70 friggin' percent. Compare that with what we have now, 21% on the poor, broken, rich people. We had enough money and we had an agenda across the globe and within the country. And unfortunately, Camelot ended uh, in a day in early no, November of 1963 uh, when Jack was killed. Well, now, Jack Kennedy's vice president was an old blue dog Texas Democrat. Blue dogs were hardcore conservative Democrats. And Lyndon Johnson was, had been a former senator. And he, every, you should have heard back at the time, there was literally celebration when Jack Kennedy was uh, killed. Oh, finally, thank God that filthy liberal Eastern Catholic who's run by the Pope is dead. Now we can get back to the way things should be, traditional. Uh, they, and Lyndon Johnson's in charge now. Well, interestingly enough, Lyndon Johnson, now one thing that was a cornerstone of uh, Kennedy's policies, he wanted a Civil Rights Act passed that would prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, creed, sex, national origin. I mean, something, oh, the conservatives, well, before you know, we're gonna have some real bad people hanging out with our good white folk. Well, you know, everyone was, all these conservatives thought Lyndon Johnson's gonna get it back to the way it was. Hell, Lyndon probably has a white sheet hanging in his closet. But Lyndon Johnson wasn't what they thought he was. He started bringing in those blue dog Democrat friends of his, and he ripped them up one side and down the other. And he threatened them. And they knew he could do it, too. He could do whatever he wanted. Back when he was running for the Senate, before in the 1950s, he had his campaign manager, and this is on good authority, he told his campaign manager to start a rumor about his opponent. He said, Jim, I want you to go out there and start a rumor that my opponent is a pig fucker. Lyndon, he ain't no pig fucker. His wife's a little chunky, but I'm like, oh, shut up, Jim. I know he ain't, and you know he ain't, but I want to make him deny it. That was Lyndon Johnson. He pulled those old blue dog senators in. Why are you doing that to us, Lyndon? Why, why are you making us vote for this Civil Rights Act to make all these folks? 
because Jack wanted it. Jack wanted it, and it's going to get done. Jack wants us to defeat the communists in Vietnam and Southeast Asia so we don't have a domino effect. We're going to get that done. Jack wanted us to go to the moon. We're going to get that done. And so the spending poured out. And the Federal Reserve finally got to the point where it, the revenues were not quite keeping up with what was going on. So money supply started getting printed a little faster to pay the bills. By the time we got to the Nixon administration, it was getting a little bit more serious. And it got really bad because in 1973, I think it was, we pissed off the Arabs. I mean, we pissed them off. They did another one of their usual attacks on Israel to drive it into the sea. And Israel took about, what was it, three days, was it, or six days to defeat them, kick their asses back to the sand. And the Arabs said, no, wait a minute. How could a little country, oh, I get it, because the U.S. is funding them. And so the Arabs said, oh, you love our oil? Well, here, we're going to just turn it off and show you what foreign policy can be. And so we had the OPEC oil embargo. Oil prices skyrocketed, and the Fed started printing money hand over fist to calm everyone down. It was awesome. You should have seen the lines. I mean, literally 20-mile lines out to the freeway for gasoline and all that. It was, it was glorious. Well, Nixon resigned, and uh, Gerald Ford came in, uh, his vice president, took over. Now, Ford understood that there was an inflation problem. More money was being printed than the economy could absorb. It causes inflation. Well, spank me. So Ford's idea was to have a bunch of buttons printed up that said, whip inflation now, win. Of course, that did no good whatsoever. Ford was defeated in 1976 by Jimmy Carter who came off as sort of a hillbilly. He was a peanut farmer. But unfortunately for the money supply, he was also a nuclear physicist. The problem was that Carter tried to put everything into a moral context. He was a very religious man. So he said, inflation is the moral equivalent of war. Well, that didn't work because the moral equivalent of war has the acronym MEOW. Uh, but in 1979, he appointed a new Fed chairman, Paul Volcker, six feet, four inches, about 280 pounds, smoked big, fat, disgusting cigars, and he didn't care about humanity. He just crushed the money supply. The money supply and of course, you know, we'd heard that before. Yeah, yeah, the Fed's going to get serious about inflation. Volcker was. As he crushed the money supply, the real interest rate supply of money goes down. The price of money, the real interest rate, started skyrocketing. But expected inflation didn't go anywhere because the markets didn't believe him. So expected inflation just kept spiraling upward. The real interest rate was spiraling upward. You got up to the point where mortgage, home mortgages were going off at 25%. Well, of course, that got Carter kicked out of office in 1980, and he was replaced by a former governor of California who was a former cowboy western actor named Ronald Reagan. And eventually, with a tax cut to help the economy, 
eventually the financial markets began to believe, my God, they're not kidding. We can't find money anywhere. And so the expected inflation began to drain out of the economy. And then once Volcker and the Fed, uh, overall Fed board was convinced that the markets were back under control, then they started easing up on the money supply and letting it grow at the normal rate. That's where we are right now. We're still in the place where we don't, the, the Fed is crushing the money supply. You see it yourself. See that, see that rate going through the roof? That's the Fed crushing the money supply. But we still haven't gotten rid of that sticky expected inflation. Inflation is still going up. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a business person. I'm building inventory right now. My prices for frames and for, uh, for all that stuff that goes into my artwork is just going through the roof. It's, one month, I, I decided I would put in only a part of an order, and so I put in the rest of it just two uh, this weekend. Higher. The expected inflation is still there, even though the money supply is being drained. You even notice it sometimes. You'll see we, uh, these, um, where the, there's no coins and stuff like that. I mean, it's really serious right now. But we haven't gotten to the point where the financial markets are taking the expected inflation out. They're still putting inflation uh, pressure into forward prices. Okay, the Fed has simply got to crush it until that's gone. Once they do, you'll start to see interest rates go down in two phases. One will be as the expected inflation premium drains out, and the second will be when the Fed begins to let up on the money supply and allow it to start growing again. But it'll take a while. The problem, of course, is that the Fed knows that it had better get the job done before the political season next year starts up because otherwise they'll be accused once again of politicizing monetary policy. Okay, now. Let me show you this. There's this other part here. It's called the risk premium. It has two parts to it. It, two, it has three pieces in it. So you have the interest rates we actually see have these are different from each other and that's because they all start with the same base, the same substrate, R sub F, but then they have different combinations of sizes of these three premia on here. And the three are this, and I'll get into them more on Wednesday, but I'm gonna list them for you now. They are the default premium, the maturity premium, and one last one, the illiquidity premium. Sometimes you'll hear me call it the old word, the liquidity premium, but I think your book calls it the illiquidity premium. Let me explain just in broad broad uh, brushstrokes. Now, I'll start with this one, the illiquidity premium. Some low, okay. I, I'm, I'm surprised by how many people who have home loans think that the bank has their loan. 
When you get a loan at a, a mortgage loan at a bank, that loan is sold by the bank within hours or a few days. Banks will do the loans for people, then they package them into a bundle, and then they sell them to these massive trillion dollar secondary mortgage markets. They get rid of them. They, they are not, banks are not in the business of home mortgages. They are in the business of uh, initiating them and then they collect a fee for getting the pay, taking the payments, but then they get them off their back to these huge international pools. Uh, you, I don't know, have any of you ever heard of Ginny Mae, Freddie Mac, or Fannie Mae? Those are secondary mortgage markets. This is where those packages of millions of loans, they ball them up and turn them into super bonds. And then they chop them into different parts for different cash flow components for different constituencies. Who buys these things? Oh, it's no one you've ever seen. I mean, governments buy them, like China buys these super bonds, these uh, secondary mortgage market things. Huge financial institutions do, life insurance companies do, uh, shadowy groups do. But they're, I mean, they're definitely not uh, in the bank anymore. So if a bank can get rid of a loan quickly, it doesn't have any illiquidity premium. It doesn't have any stickiness. Now, a car loan is something different. A car loan, a bank can't just offload that. It's stuck with it. So because it's stuck with all the problems, you know, and processing and all that, repos, in a case like that, you would have uh, maybe anywhere from uh, a half a basis point on up to 10 basis points. This is one of the big reasons, one of the reasons why credit cards have a high interest rate is because once a banking institution gets into credit cards, it can sell those credit card accounts very easily to someone else. Okay, now, let me do this one, the default premium. The default premium is extra scratch for the possibility that the borrower will default. So a home mortgage would have a low default premium because even if the homeowner defaults, the bank can get the house. So, and also there's insurance to cover any difference between the house value and the loan amount. So there, that's a low default premium. Now a car loan has a relatively low default premium because there's, it's backed by an asset. So it can, the bank can get something back. It's a little worse though because once a car buyer drives the car off the lot, it loses some value right away. So even if they take it back, the bank does in a default, they probably are gonna lose some money on it. So that default premium is higher. That's why you'll see a car loan go off at a higher interest rate than a home loan will. Now the maturity premium, the one in the middle, it is higher the longer the term of the loan. This is because a long-term loan has more chance of interest rates doing weird things over a long period of time than over a short period of time. If a bank gives me a loan for a year, interest rates can't do a whole lot in that time period. But if it's a 30-year mortgage, interest rates could go all over the place 
and the bank might be left holding the bag because it's stuck with a loan of a specific interest rate when the interest rates out there in the economy are whipping around to other things, having fun other ways. So the maturity premium gets worse as time goes on. This is actually a physics principle, and I'll show you on Wednesday about this one. But for the time being, you take these and you put them together, and this will be what drives a given interest rate that you uh, take on. So for example, I went to a car dealership just last week. He said, okay, uh, we got a night, this car I want. He said, if you get a three-year loan, you get an APR of 4.89%. It's probably higher by now with what the stupid Fed is doing. But, and then I said, well, okay, that's wonderful. And I calculated the payments on a three-year loan. $807, are you on crack? No, I'm not going to. So what about a five-year loan? He said, well, that's 5.39%. How about a six-year loan? Oh, that's 5.99%. So you see how that maturity premium, that's a pure maturity premium, as the loan's life gets longer, the maturity premium goes up. So what did I do? I went back and appreciated the car that I've got, by God. It may be old and ugly, but it's mine. Okay, anyway, that's all I have for you today. I thank you.